Yolanda, thanks for being with us today on the Schneps Connects podcast. You've been covered by several local media outlets in New York City, including QNS.com and AM New York Metro, which we own and publish. And there certainly have been many concerns related to the quality of life throughout New York City since the pandemic hit. But yours is kind of a unique story in the way that you and other members of the community decide to address it in your own backyard. Right. Um, before I guess we get into your story, I'd love to just have you share a little bit about yourself and the community that you live in. Well, sure, sure. And thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. So I live in Long Island City. I've lived here consistently for the past five years, but I've been in and out of the neighborhood for the past 18 years. Uh, my sister owned a, a building here and business here, so I would actively help her a lot. Um, and then five years ago, I decided to make it my home. I'm from Queens originally, but I'm from Ozone Park, Queens. Um, so I'm a Queens girl at heart. <laughs> and nice. uh, I live here with my family, my husband and uh, my daughter, who's now home from college because of COVID. Thought we had empty nesting going on, but then COVID hit and she's back. And, um, you know, professionally, I know that was one of the questions you asked me. I, I, uh, I have my own district office for insurance company that also does enrollment technology for companies and educate them on their benefits and provide technology to streamline their processes. And I've been doing that for 17 years. Well, I look at Long Island City as kind of a very large uh, neighborhood because you have the waterfront and mm -hmm. then you kind of have everything, you know, beyond Vernon Boulevard. So what Correct. part of uh, the community do you live in? Yeah, and Long Island City is much more than just, just the waterfronts, I like to say that, um, although I do spend a lot of time there because it's beautiful and, you know, it's our green space, but I live actually right by Vernon and Jackson, so just three blocks down from the water, but right uh, in, the, in the Hunter's Point area. So if you can, I'd love you to share with our listeners the concerns that you were having in the community in Long Island City there and, you know, what you went about doing to address it. Sure, sure. So obviously the pandemic has affected and had a trickle effect in lots of different ways in our world and, and in our community. What it happened was that due to the lack of open <laughs> arenas for people to have recreational time, the park has been, I, I like keep calling it discovered. It's always been there. It's a beautiful park. Uh, it is not owned by any of the residents. It's a public park and we all recognize that. And However, when you say the park, can you just elaborate on which one you're referring to for our listeners? Sure. It's Hunter's Point Park South and the Gantry State Park. It's uniquely owned by both the state and the city and it's divided, but it does run along the perimeter of the East River waterfront from about 58th all the way down to the Boat Basin, which many people are familiar with. So it runs the whole strip, but it is separated by city and state. And I live closer to the Hunter's Point Park side. Yeah, and for and a lot that, of our listeners, it's where all the, the glistening towers are along the waterfront. Yes, correct. And uh, basically what was happening is that it's been discovered. So a lot of people are coming to the park to, to blow off steam and have a place to go, which is understandable. But it got to the point where it was very disruptive. Loud music being played, drag racing happening, motorcycles coming and zipping up and down the street, causing safety issues for visitors and residents alike. And most importantly, quality of life issues. Now, everybody recognizes we live in New York City and therefore there's going to be noise and there's going to be people enjoying the city that never sleeps. But it got to a point where it became very, very disruptive. And despite any of our efforts with the local precincts and or city officials to help us come up with a solution, nothing was happening. And so restaurant owners and residents alike decided to organize an effort to hire security in an effort to keep the quality of life down in terms of noise control, just helping people understand the guidelines in the park. So it was very much uh, an initiative that was built on a passive approach, but having added presence that was lacking. 
because the parks department closes at 10 p.m. because the park closes at 10 p.m. And the 108 with everything that's been going on, which is our local precinct, was having a hard time managing everything. That's the polite way to say it. So I guess the, the large issues that you were seeing were, were noise related? And yes, court- noise related, the fireworks, safety issues, traffic issues, all of them. And, I, I, and if I get the timeline right, it was about mid-August that you decided to put together a, a GoFundMe page? That's correct. So talk a little bit about that and, and how you got started in terms of deciding, you know, what you wanted to do and I guess, you know, getting people behind it. Sure. So we uh, actually organized a meeting in the park through some of the local leaders that, you know, seemed to be involved much more with the park. And I was invited to be part of that. And as the meeting was going on, we realized how many people were really, really supportive of the idea because they just needed something to happen, some, some action to take place. You know, everybody sitting there complaining on Facebook or social media and just within each other and not actually doing something about it seemed to come to a head. And the group of people that came, which was around 50, were on full support of hiring our own security. So that's how that came about. And so I took it upon myself to help organize it, uh, create a Gmail account, create a community page account in Facebook, and then put the GoFundMe together. Interviewed a couple of security firms and to determine which ones we were going to use and figured out what the cost was going to look like so that we can set the goal because we wanted to have the presence there from as soon as we could, um, when we started in August, through which we just ended just this past weekend. So we were able to accomplish all that. And it was all just due to the fact of the community coming together and me being the forefront of organizing it because I volunteered to do it and represent the group. So I guess before we go into the security, you know, it seems that the GoFundMe had a goal of $8,000 and went well above that in just nine days. Yes. It like there was about 179 donors donating anywhere from $5 each to $1,000. Correct. So what, what did that surprise you, I should ask? Uh, no, I, it honestly didn't surprise me. I, you know, it, it surprised me that there wasn't as many uh, donors, to, to be honest with you. And, you know, the 8,000 fund was a conservative number that we came up with based on what we initially thought we would need. And it grew. And, you know, the big thousand dollar donors were, was a local restaurant who just very supportive of the area um, and wanted to give back and help to help with the quality of life issues. But I was also surprised that there were less donors because Every penny would have counted, you know, $5 here was uh, is something that we all kind of talked about being the fact that there's 20,000 residents that live on the waterfront um, in order for us to be able to put this together. But I was also pleasantly surprised. I mean, the support was there. The media was here uh, because I took that initiative to speak to them. And I'm the type of person that is if something I believe in. I think that it's well-intended. I want to do my best to organize it, but you have to take action. You can't just sit back. And, and that's what we did. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to help my community. So you, you have the money. And I guess the intention was then to go hire a security company and address some of the issues related to noise, garbage, people exceeding, I guess, the hours that they're supposed to be on Parkland. But, but how did you see going about implementing that? I mean, how do you have a security team assist that? I mean, how did you envision that this was going to achieve confronting those issues without it either escalating or with it being effective in any way? Sure. And it's a great question. I mean, it obviously had to do with interviewing different security firms. We were referred to this security firm after initially uh, interviewing a few others by one of the local developments community affairs office, actually with TFC Cornerstone. Um, and when I interviewed them after having interviewed several others, they seemed to understand the scope of the work. They had a great reputation in terms of what they've done before 
they understood the, you know, the climate of what we would potentially be dealing with, with the way people may react to what we were trying to put in place, which was, you know, uh, like I said earlier, a peaceful way to approach the situation. And that's how I went about it. You have to do your due diligence, ask the right questions. When you're speaking to the companies that you're, again, ask the right questions and see what they respond. Because if that was the only way that I was going to gain comfort and have them really understand what we intended because there was nothing behind it other than just trying to help people understand that we want them to enjoy the park anybody who comes to the park and just be respectful because it is a residential area. And that was all that it was about. So you started raising the money in mid-August. When did you hire the first company? Well, we went back and forth on what the uh, what it would look like. Uh, and when I say what it would look like is whether we were going to have two. Initially, we were going to start with just two walking guards. We also considered having a, a secure patrol car, but we thought that would come across too aggressive. So we were going to just have two walking security guards just walking the perimeter of the park you know, because we have to be respectful of the park because they weren't very supportive of us doing this. But we walked the perimeter of the park and they were just going to be documenting so that we would have a log to share with the local precinct. Because again, this was really designed to just give that added level of presence and support because everything else that was going on with the defunding of the police, which is what they're using as the reason that they couldn't have additional people at the park to help with these issues. So we said, all right, then I guess this is what we need to do. So two were the original that we were going to bring on. Once we realized that the, you know, the scope of the distance between the the gantry side park and the Hunter's Point side was too far, too vast, then we added two more. So throughout the process, which started in August, as you said, we went with four guards on foot, just with radios, being able to communicate with one another, and also with community members that were going to be able to communicate when they saw things or, or understood things were happening in the park, that we could then communicate to them and they would be able to address. And it was all about de-escalating and just being polite in the approach. Because the what about days and hours? When were they going out? Yes, Thursday through Sunday from 10 until 3 a.m. So 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. Thursday through Sunday. So talk to us about what encounters that they've had. Because this has been going on now for, is, I assume it's still continuing to this day, those hours and days? We finished our last uh, security tour this weekend, actually, Saturday is the last one. Uh, we won't be doing any more until this spring. Um, so we're going to be reorganizing what we're doing and going with what we learned um, in the process. But what they encountered, I would post weekly logs from what they would give to me. And they encountered people with the loud music. They encountered bicyclists uh, riding in the, in, not in the bike lane and kind of being, you know, disruptive in the park and going over places. We encountered bus party buses coming to the neighborhood at 2 a.m. and wanting to have parties at the waterside. And all of those were addressed by the security team in a very respectful manner and everybody adhered. Nobody, we had no incident of any issue at all. Everybody was very, very respectful. And I, and I, and I always believe that humans tend to want to be respectful. That's my belief system. And I know there's those that don't want to be, but I think when you approach it the right way, they're responsive and they understood. And most of what we encountered was just a lot of loud music, the drag racing, the revels in the park that are in the green space where they're not supposed to be. Um, And it was all documented and logged. So it seems that most public officials were against the hiring of private security. And I guess Mm -hmm. for some good reasons, their concerns, particularly about how things would be addressed when they do confront um, people. Mm -hmm. Did their concerns based on, you know, what they had to say, as well as the experiences over the past six weeks, change your outlook at all? 
No. And I, the reason, it, again, it, I think it's all about who, who the person is, who is organizing, who they're talking to, how it's being conveyed, what the scope of the work was to be. I knew what that it was and I knew what it was intended by the community. And they chose me to, to do it because I, I feel like I, I, I come across in the right way. So everything that the city officials said couldn't be backed up with anything, in my opinion. It was unfortunately going along with the climate of what was happening in, in, in our city. And I think we proved to them that there was no ill intention towards anyone and that we were able to de-escalate issues down to even people fighting in the park and helping people. So there was so much good that we were able to do with what we did that I think their initial response was just a response to the climate that we're living in right now and not really had any true merit behind it that I, that I understood. And I didn't see anything change. You know, I didn't see anything go towards the direction that they were uh, concerned about. Talk to me a little bit about other support as well as resistance that you've had in the community. I mean, I know like I live in a, in a waterfront building in New York City. And, you know, I don't even want to join the board of my building because, you know, you, as soon as you get into the elevator, you have to deal with issues. So I'm curious what <laughs> you are, you know, seeing both from um, supporters and those opposed and what, sure. you know, what you heard and kind of what the experience was leading um, this initiative. Yeah. Um, you know, it was an interesting experience to see the response of the, the opposers and how far they will go to insult you. <laughs> Let's start with the supporters. The supporters were amazing. You know, we had the, you know, some people in our in our neighborhood that are maybe too outspoken, and others that are, you know, more comfortable being in, in, in behind the scenes. And I, I created the right balance, I have to say, and I was able to reel in those people in the community that uh, were going a little too far in their commentary and help them understand that it's all about the approach. It's all about the wordings that you use and you have to take a step back and see it from both sides. So from the support side, I was able to organize and get everybody to feel really good about what we were doing. And I mean, I couldn't have done it without them. And also the help of some people that live in the area that are part of the media that were just tired of what was happening in in their own residence area as well. So that was a huge help. As far as resistance, yeah, there was plenty of resistance in terms of people thinking you know, we had the wrong intention in our hearts. And I just continued to communicate that that was the furthest from the truth. I did endure a lot of people calling me some inappropriate names and, you know, searching through my social media to find things that they wanted to point out to me that conflicted with what, you know, what I was campaigning for, which was a peaceful waterfront at certain hours, (laughs) because I have parties in my own home. But so the whole thing was very interesting especially speaking to the city officials like Jimmy Van Bramer and Catherine Nolan, who did oppose the security. Catherine Nolan was a little bit more um, complimentary of what I was able to accomplish, regardless of the fact that she didn't support it. Jimmy Van Bramer chose to go a different direction and, and not even speak to me before he decided to make a decision. So this whole process has made me realize how people can change when they become a political figure and they don't even know how to stand in their own belief system anymore. They, they, it seems like they just go with which, which the climate is going to be the most popular. And that is what I learned, if that answers your question. Sure. Well, I think it certainly gives us insight in terms of what you had to deal with uh, on mm-hmm. both ends of it. So you said it's been going on for six weeks. This past weekend is, you know, you, you're taking a hiatus. So why, why is it ending now? What was it? Is it a funding issue? Is it related to the weather? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely weather is going to be driving it. You know, for example, this past Saturday, we just decided to raise a little bit more in order to have the security in the park Saturday because we were really, we were like $186 left on Saturday. 
but because the weather was going to be so lovely, we decided to fundraise a little more and folks, they donated so we can have the security team on Saturday night, four of them there. But we're not going to continue to do that because of the weather. The weather does impact the situation. And right now, the focus of the group is to keep working with the Department of Transportation in reference to the traffic issues that we have on the, on the riverfront, because those are not going away. And when I refer to the traffic issues, it's the drag racing, it's the people blowing through the stop signs that are not very visible. So we're trying to work with them during the hiatus of the security to get that in place so that when the springtime comes, we're not dealing with the same issues. And potentially, maybe we won't even have to have the security because a lot of the, the traffic calming guidelines that should be put in place on center have been ignored for some time because it wasn't as important for a while. But now with the increased construction in there and the increased discovery of the park, it really needs to be addressed. So that's my focus from now until through the winter. So we're not going to be having security because of the, of the weather. So I want to get back to the security, but where is it exactly that you're seeing the drag racing in Long Island City? Center and Borden is where it starts, also off of 48th, leading into Center. They all pretty much staged there. Last night, we had about 25 cars there waiting to drag down Center Boulevard. And it's not only just that they drag race. The cars are souped up to make a lot of noise, so it becomes very, very noisy. But most importantly, it's about the safety. And that's really something that I want to press, is that it's really about the safety of the folks in the area the restaurants have the outdoor seating now. People are coming into the area to enjoy the outdoor seating, and it's just posing a lot of danger. So, you know, going back to, to the security, I mean, I think probably the largest concern is just seeing how security not only interacted with the people that were there, but also, you know, the Parks Department officials that are responsible mm-hmm. for really um, making sure people don't come in in the evening, as well as the NYPD, right? Because you really, you know, have the 108 that's right down the block there. So were there yes. any issues, and I'm, I'm very curious, have you had any feedback from Parks Department and or the, the local precinct in terms of the effort? Well, interestingly enough, like I said, once we decided to really take action and all the media attention that we got was there, the Parks Department responded. Their initial response was that they don't support us getting our own security. I said, well, then what's your solution? Because you close at 10 p.m. They started having Parks Patrol available from 10 to midnight, and they were working with our security team. So they worked very well together in communicating what was going on because the security team can't do anything. They had no real, you know, authority to do anything, which is the other thing that I always kept pressing. They're just there to help people understand, you know, lower the music, do this, whatever. The parks department and the police are the ones that can enforce. So when this all happened and at the peak of the public knowing what was happening in Long Island City, we had the state police there, we had 108 there patrolling more often, and we had the parks patrolling. So they all kind of came together. I have been actively consistently speaking to one of the community affairs officers at the 108 every single week. So we've been working together to keep each other in the know of what happened over the weekend. I would provide him with some of the information. He would provide me with how many summonses were issued because of the more added presence. So it kind of create, started to turn into a task force, if you will, between the parks, the 108, and our security. And we all worked really well together. Well, I guess also that initial publicity that you raised by um, starting the GoFundMe mm-hmm. did bring together a, um, a Zoom of city agencies and uh, the local council member, correct? Jimmy Van Bremer? Yeah. I mean, he got involved a bit. And like I said, his initial thing was to support this opposing petition that was put out there that was um, completely false in what they were stating about us. But he 
you know, he took a, he took a position. He followed up once with me and we had a town hall type of zoom with the DOT department of health, because there was also the issues with the food trucks. So a lot of stuff happening that we were dealing with. And that was it. I mean, he, I think he did it just to um, show that he was trying to be supportive on, on both sides, but ever since then he's, he's gone away and I just continue to do what I do. But do you think that zoom led to those patrols that you had discussed? Oh yeah, absolutely. The, the media attention. And the fund me completely. And, yeah, and that follow up, yeah. I guess, uh, yes. forum that was held over Zoom. Yes, for sure. It, it, it certainly created um, a buzz. And, and like for two weeks straight, there was a lot of presence there. But there was also that unfortunate murder that took place on Center and Borden, which had a lot of undercover cops in the area because, uh, you know, trying to figure out what, what was the real motivation because it wasn't really about a parking spot, unfortunately. So, you know, looking back at this kind of, I guess you could call it, an experiment, you know, how would you measure the impact that it had in the waterfront community of Long Island City? And and what do you think is the long-term solution? The short-term impact, I think, was positive, especially for the residents that live there. They felt a sense of, they did have the ability to to make a change, and we did it together, and they felt better knowing that the security was there to help improve the quality of life issues they were experiencing. (laughs) What did we learn for going forward and what should we be doing? I I don't know that we should continue to have security. And I think many of us will think that way. It it really shouldn't be our job to do it. It should be the city officials to figure out how to make that waterfront the right way for everybody to feel comfortable, visitors and residents alike, and the police need to be more involved. And I think, like I said earlier, it's just like a perfect storm with the pandemic and the political uh, climate of our world and you know, the racial issues that we're all experiencing and everything that made this even much more of a difficult situation. But for the long term, that's part of what we're going to be talking about in our next meeting. What is the structure of this group going to be? What is really going to be our initiative? And how are we going to help the city officials and the police department do their jobs a little better for us next year? You know, one of the things I love about New York City is every neighborhood is almost its own world. Mm-hmm. And- uh, you know, even a neighborhood like Long Island City, it's almost neighborhoods within neighborhoods are their own worlds that people kind of uh, really uh, embrace or live and work and play around. And you obviously took this um, initiative for Long Island City. And what would you say to other people in other parts of the city that are dealing with some of the issues that you confronted? Would you recommend taking the actions that you took or what would you share with them as an example for other neighborhoods across the city? Well, I think that you you do have to be vocal. I mean, when you have a concern, a legitimate concern, you need to be vocal about it and not just behind a computer. If you truly want to make a difference, you have to organize and you have to reach out to the right places in order to be heard. And I think that's an important aspect of our country in general. There's a lot of issues going on in the city right now. And the only way to make make them known is by taking action, writing letters to your city official, writing letters to your mayors. And if your city officials aren't doing it for you, you you should organize and, and do it and do it in the right way. I mean, I had the Upper West Side reach out to me when this was happening because of all the you know, the homelessness issues they were experiencing that was creating the same thing, quality of issue lives for them. Now, would I recommend that they go hire security? No, I don't know that I would recommend that to anybody. It did. It, it was something that we came together to do as an or, as a community that, that seemed to work, but I don't know that it was the right decision. And when I say right, it's nothing wrong came out of it, but is that what we should be doing? We do need to be heard and we have to do it properly. And I do firmly believe that our uh, police and city officials should be the ones that create the solutions by listening to the constituents. 
but we really shouldn't have to take it into our own hands. Well, Yolanda, I want to thank you for sharing your grassroots advocacy story with us and wish you the best of luck. I appreciate it. And thank you for your time today. My pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.